Welcome to Frankly Judaic, a podcast that explores cutting-edge Judaic studies research conducted at the University of Michigan. If you know anything about modern Hebrew literature, you've probably at least heard of writers such as S.Y. Agnon, Amos Oz, and David Grossman, to name some of the most celebrated well-known literary authors. But chances are you're not familiar with the so-called trash literature, the serialized detective novels, westerns, and romantic melodramas that were popular in the late 1930s and 1940s in pre-state Palestine and in the early years of the new Jewish state. A lot of these books, the melodramas in particular, have the titles of the main female protagonist who's faced with all sorts of dilemmas. That's Naomi Brenner, an associate professor of Hebrew and Israeli culture at Ohio State University and a fellow at the Frankel Center. She's lost and adrift in the world, and she's penniless. It's a very classic kind of start. A lot of people are really in dire financial straits, and they find themselves kind of at the mercy, both of heroic figures who show up, oftentimes young, attractive wealthy men who come with good intentions and fall in love with our lovely heroines. But then there are also the villains, the bad guys who are trying to cheat them, trick them, kidnap them, sell them, all of these other things. The book's main purpose, Brenner says, was to entertain and especially to make money for the writers and publishers. These tend to be very episodic driven plots because um, keep in mind they're serialized. So, you know, you have booklets that are about 16 pages a piece. You know, different different books sometimes issue different things that come out at first every week. The first booklet is free to get people to read it. And then, well, that's the, that's the uh, economic piece behind it. This is seen as mass literature, you know, to get people to buy it. And so then it comes out once a week and each episode ends with a cliffhanger. You know, our heroine has just fainted or someone's been kidnapped or someone, you know, is dead but might be coming back to living. But there's the cliffhanger, so of course she'll buy next week. Um, and then they start producing them maybe twice a week with the really popular series. Now, given the quote-unquote trashy nature of these novels, you may wonder why a literary and cultural scholar like Brenner would bother studying this stuff. Brenner has several reasons. For example, she says we can learn a lot about a particular time and place by looking at what average people read. Not only what the critics told them they should read or what they're supposed to read, whether it's teachers or, you know, high literary figures are saying, you know, what's good, what's quality, but what they're actually reading. And sometimes what people are actually reading is what, what's often called bad, bad fiction, bad literature, especially in literary terms. But why I think they're important is that I think they can, well, first of all, I think they can further historical and literary understanding of Jewish life and culture in, in Palestine, in the Yishuv, by giving us different portraits of life at the time. We see a very different view of life. It tends to be more urban, less ideological, um, more capitalist, all sorts of other things that go on that really contrast with more familiar, um, higher literary accounts of the time. Studying popular, lowbrow Hebrew fiction of the time also says a lot about how Hebrew literature was developing. How it develops both within the sort of canonical center, within the mainstream, gives us different perspectives on very familiar texts when we start to say, hey, is it just by accident that, that Agnon, right, one of the most canonical writers of this time, is writing gothic stories in much the same time? 
What about certain other writers who are also seen as very mainstream at this time? Some of the kibbutz writers who are drawing on very melodramatic themes. Are there any connections here? In what way do these texts have the potential to kind of make us rethink distinctions that we've just received and continue to perpetuate between high culture, elite culture, important culture, and low culture, stuff that's disposable and has been forgotten. One of these disposable works that Brenner focuses on, a melodramatic novel titled Aviva, was one of the longest-running serialized Hebrew fictions of the time. It's translation, or it's a partial translation, from one of the most popular melodramas in Yiddish called Sabina that was initially came out in 1937 in Warsaw. But the Hebrew version comes out in Tel Aviv in installments in 1946. And so it comes out in over 50 installments. So people are buying this every week, waiting for the next installment to see what happens with their characters. To give you a sense of what grabbed readers' attention and why the cultural establishment denigrated works like Aviva, here is an excerpt from the novel's opening scene. It seemed to her, to Aviva, that her world had darkened for eternity. Her feet plodded on the empty streets and streams of rain mingled with the tears that fell from her eyes. A short while ago, her mother, finally freed from her suffering by sudden death, had been buried in her grave. As clods of earth fell with dud thuds, dull thuds, on the boards of the coffin that enclosed her mother's body, Aviva knew that from now on she would be alone in a cold and cruel world. Now, mainstream critics didn't just dislike this sort of writing. They hated it. The melodramas and westerns and detective stories didn't merely lack nuanced characterization and literary innovation, according to the critics. They were poisoning the minds of vulnerable readers. So the word that's most commonly used in the reviews is that this is poison. What is it poisoning? It's poisoning young readers who should be reading good high-quality Hebrew literature that will uplift them, that will encourage them and reinforce Zionist ideology, that will shape them as productive members of new Hebrew society, right? All of these different instructive roles for Hebrew literature within the Jewish community in Palestine. And what are they reading instead? They're reading trash. They're reading poison. They're reading things translated from Yiddish. Yiddish was a problem for cultural arbiters of the Zionist establishment, Brenner says, because it was so closely associated with the diaspora. With Eastern Europe, with the previous life that's supposed to, within a Zionist ideological conception, be negated in the new Hebrew. So to have especially youth, and it's not just youth, but especially youth reading this kind of stuff is a terrible thing. The literary establishment was so alarmed by the popularity of this trashy fiction that they called for it to be banned and turned away at the port. The Yiddish copies themselves shouldn't be imported, that the Hebrew copies shouldn't be printed, that they shouldn't be sold, um, that there should be boycotts against anyone who dared kind of pen this kind of work, that they should you know, be prevented from publishing in more mainstream or respectable venues um, because this should be eliminated in Hebrew, that it shouldn't be allowed to take root and to thrive. The critical response to Hebrew popular literature is in some ways ironic, Brenner says. After all, the Zionist project meant to make Jews normal by creating a Jewish nation that would be the same as any other nation, including its citizens' taste for popular fiction. 
But for at least one critic, this ethos did not apply to Hebrew literature. One of the critics, Yisharun, who writes in the newspaper about how terrible these books are. You know, lots of people say, well, we ultimately want to be a nation just like all the other nations. So all other nations have trashy literature. Shouldn't we have it too? And he says, no, that's where we have to draw the line. Hebrew is pure. Hebrew is virtuous. Hebrew has its illustrious history of being, you know, the language of the Jewish people and now the language of the Zionist project, we have the opportunity to keep make Hebrew better, continue to protect Hebrew from these sorts of infiltrations. And of course, he concludes that we must continue to do that. So for him, it's precisely on this point that that Hebrew culture wants to differentiate itself from other from other literary cultures, from other national cultures, rather than to join the bandwagon. Nevertheless, regular Hebrew readers in pre-state Palestine gobbled up these works, buying and reading the serialized installments as soon as they appeared on the shelves. And while the books were not anti-Zionist, they represented, Brenner says, an alternative to socialist Zionist ideology. In fact, many of the publishers and writers were associated with the right-wing revisionist party. These are not books being made for posterity and imagine that they'll have some sort of prized place on people's bookshelves. It's, they know that. The people producing these texts are very aware of it. They're produced in kind of very slim booklets that start to disintegrate after they get passed around too many times. These are a different phenomenon one that reflects a much more capitalist mindset, which extends us more towards the right wing, towards revisionism, as opposed to a socialist Zionist outlook. But they also see a place for entertainment, a kind of much more bourgeois conception of what you do in your spare time. You can you know, put your feet up, read a trashy book and relax and enjoy. And if you have the disposable income, you can go out and buy more. In the end, Brenner says, the mostly forgotten work she's studying can tell us a lot about the birth and evolution of Hebrew literary culture in the years leading up to statehood and in the early days of the fledgling Jewish state. It tells us a lot about the place of literature within a society, which is to say, yes, it can be dictated, as it were, from above by the critics, by the high writers, but not entirely that there is a really important place within a culture for books that exist for entertainment, the books that are escapist, that they're cheap, that they're affordable, that they're even disposable. Um, But that's a really important place for literature to exist as well. And despite the best efforts of, you know, what we could call culture shapers in this period in the Yishuv, that they cannot control um, or completely dictate and shape culture in the image that they choose, which is, in very general terms, a very strongly Zionist one. That does it for this episode of Frankly Judaic, a production of the Gene and Samuel Frankel Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. The executive producer of Frankly Judaic is Jeffrey Weidlinger, the director of the Frankel Center. We'd love to know what you thought about this episode, so be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave us some comments. Thanks for listening.